Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Thursday evening where we have the privilege to reflect into this very rich topic of theology of the body. And uh, wherever you may be listening to this radio program, if it is in your house or in your car, or however you may be listening to this program, if it be via podcast, we really do welcome you. And just not locally, but abroad. I, I have very much appreciated your feedback, your emails specific to this subject matter uh, that we treat Thursday Night Theology of the Body. It is clear to me that this is generating some thought, generating some discussion outside this studio, so I do appreciate that. And I'm excited once again this Thursday because I do have uh, Derek Allen and Chris Seibert with me. So guys, great to have you back with me another Thursday. Hey, good to be here again, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks again for having me as well, Joe. Pleasure to join you guys. So guys, before we jump into the work, the love that satisfies, I thought it would be good to briefly reflect into the ways in which theology of the body forms and informs uh, this call we have during Lent to not only make sacrifices and what we take in, but also how we are to sacrifice our time and what we do for others. And so where would be um, the best place to start? Well, let us remember what theology of the body itself means. Theology means, well, the study of God. Uh, Theology of the body then means the ways in which we study God in the body. We must remember Genesis 126 and 127. We were created in the image and likeness of God in our maleness and femaleness. So in this union between man and woman, we reflect the stuff of God. So yes, it is right that we study the bodies in our anthropology just not in its biological sphere, but also in its theological sphere, as Benedict XVI would have us see it. So very important, and I'm thinking of Ephesians 5 as well, guys, huh? (laughs) How Paul is very clear that the union of man and woman points to the union between Christ and his church, and that this is a great mystery, okay? How our bodies are just not biological, but also theological, okay? and how we can again study God in our bodies, that he stamped something of himself in our very maleness and femaleness. I absolutely love that. And when you start thinking, guys, about the context of theology of the body and how eros, that human erotic love, is intended to express agape, that more divine sacrificial love, how the donation of the flesh is just not sexual, but also points to something that is sacrificial, This is where we should begin to appreciate how theology of the body helps us uh, understand our call to Lent, this call that we have to discipline the flesh, that uh, the consummative act isn't the end goal of the sexual urge, but the raw material for the more authentic love to develop. And in that more authentic love, that is the agape, the divine sacrificial love. And of course, in that sacrifice, we are called to donate our flesh in more than just one way, but in every way. This is how theology of the body begins to impact the way we think about Lent. To me, making a gift of the body, I, I always would make a gift of the body in fasting or, or some sort of abstinence 
as an offering to God. And since studying theology of the body, I realize God doesn't want me to stop there, but to make an offering of myself for my spouse, mm-hmm. as Ephesians 5 calls us to, making an offering of my body in my sacrifices, in my gift of self for my children mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. for those who I am serving. It, it was interesting yesterday, Ash Wednesday, talking to a friend of mine. Uh, we were at my apartment, and you know, of course, Ash Wednesday, this wonderful day of fasting, I I couldn't help but realize that I was getting cravings for all of the foods that I normally wouldn't want. <laughs> all of the things that I normally wouldn't want just, just seemed to pop up yesterday. And it was interesting. I pointed this out to my friend, and the second I said it, he nodded in agreement. And I think that that really shows discovering Christ through our body in the way that we do during Lent, because we really have this opportunity to unite ourselves with Christ on the cross, mm-hmm. um, to discover our Lord, not in the manger, like during Advent, not in, in a really happy, joyful setting, but really in sort of the pain and the suffering of the cross, um, which is something that I've always treasured about this time of Lent. Mm. Yeah, we give up one thing, and as you just spoke to it well, Derek, the moment we give up that one thing, we replace it with another thing. Even during Lent, we have the tendency to do that. And what we are reminded of is that we are weak and we are in need of Christ. We are constantly seeking to fill the void. Why? Because enough is never enough. It's kind of like, you know, you, you buy a house and you look at a house and, and you say, well, once we get those two things fixed, the sink and maybe the bathroom, all is well, all is good. And then there's always something else. And I'm, and I'm not talking about things that break down but things that you want to dress up a little bit, if you will. Huh? Wait, you're not talking about the money pit? Yeah. I'm hearing the Tom Hanks movie right here. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> enough is never enough. There's always something more. And it really, guys, it brings us back to that overarching principle of what you feed grows. And that's the gift of Lent. It says stop. <laughs> it says stop. And there's a gift there, too, um, you know, when you think about what concupiscence is, it's that, mm. that tendency to just want, crave things for the flesh and things that don't necessarily help the flesh. I think for me, uh, that experience of Ash Wednesday, as Derek was alluding to, is all those things come at me. I drive by the Jalio store <laughs> right down the street here, <laughs> and it's like it's literally grabbing me by the shirt and mm-hmm. beckoning me to come in, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it gets me in touch with, I'm a very concupiscent person. I mean, it's just in me to yeah. want and desire these things, and it's good to be able to, to say no to those things and with a, with a clear conscience. I was listening to, I think it was Father Barron, and he made a beautiful point. You know, you, you focus in on one thing, that one thing, and we talked about it last night. Focus in on that one thing. Pope Francis said, find, what is that one thing that you're most attached to? But don't just stop at that one thing. Focus in on that one thing, but allow that one thing to touch many other things. Why would Father Barron talk about that? And of course, Pope Francis, because of what we're talking about right now. After you give up the one thing, there's seemingly so many antennas to it. (laughs) Like you just spoke to... Plan B, C, and D, come quickly. (laughs) Yeah, Chris. It's anyone who's ever taken care of a garden and has had to pull weeds. Mm -hmm. You know, you focus on that one weed and you pull it out. And then sure enough, the next day, there's four that have replaced it. Mm -hmm. And it's... And it's in this Lenten time we're sort of weeding out the excess, um, mm-hmm. clearing away something for our spirit, um, setting the flesh aside. And it's, it's a real beauty to this time of season, mm-hmm. to this time of year. Very much so. It, what it does, it allows us to be more disposed 
to do what God is calling us to do, and that's really what it's about, really entering into that interior attitude of faith. And in light of the interior attitude of faith and better understanding who we are and where we are going, you know, earlier I uh, said theology means the study of God. Well, in its more classic developed sense, it's fides corns intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Christopher West, in the love that satisfies throughout this work, as John Paul II does in Benedict XVI, really use that phrase, faith seeking understanding, so as to better understand who we are and our anthropology and where we are going specifically in our relationship. So, with that, guys, let us jump back into chapter six. Uh, I know you were uh, away for a week, but I didn't get very far. I have to apologize. I think I got stuck in a, a few sentences or phrases of Christopher West. But uh, for those of you who have your books out there, The Love That Satisfies, we are on page 104, excerpt uh, 41. The philosophical dimension to be noted in this biblical vision lies in the fact that God is the absolute and ultimate source of all being. But this universal principle of creation, the Logos, primordial reason, is at the same time a lover with all the passion of a true love. Eros is thus supremely ennobled, yet at the same time it is so purified as to become one with agape. Amen. Thanks for reading that, Derek. I love this opening piece here from Christopher West underneath that excerpt. The logos, the logic at the source of all that exists is not just some impersonal power of creation. This reminds me of what we've already talked about at the beginning of this chapter. I mean, remember, philosophy can know that God exists. It can even discern certain things about the divine power at the source of existence. But can we conclude without the aid of God's self-revelation? Can we conclude without the aid of biblical faith that God loves? That's the distinction. Huh? Aristotle himself could conclude only that the divine majesty is to be loved, but that he's love? No, he is love. So he's, he is not some punitive institutional authoritarian up there, some impersonal magnetic force. No, God is love. And so what we come to discover in light of sacred scripture is that in Christ— as Christopher West notes it, we discovered that the Logos is an eternal person who loves with an eternal love. Remember what we've talked about as it relates to the Trinity. The Trinity is that eternal, perfect exchange of love. The Father eternally loving the Son, and the Son eternally loving the Father, and in that love you have the Holy Spirit. So the Logos is a lover with all the passion of a true love, as Benedict XVI notes it a love that has become incarnate. Now, Christopher West, and I absolutely love this, to help us reflect on these truths, goes to an interview between Esaias and Bono. And I know, Chris, this, this hits close to home for you. U2 is a uh, kind of an impactful uh, music group in my past. When I was a teenager, it was kind of uh, the time that they became uh, pretty mainstream popular that I started listening to their music. Things such as I'd be listening to an album in 40. It's a song about the 40th Psalm. And I thought, wait a second, in my 14-year-old world, I didn't know mainstream, very popular uh, uh, rock bands could sing about things of faith. Mm. I thought it was cool, but I thought, are they breaking some kind of rule here? Mm. Um, songs like Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For that speak to a yearning for uh, something more, that just what we're seeing in 
you know, in the, in the secular world isn't enough. There's something deeper that we should be yearning for. And uh, even some of their more recent music has kind of brought me back into listening to them. So they've always been a um, kind of a touchstone for me to the ways that music and popular culture can be infused with some spiritual truth. Yeah, I know we've talked about this a little bit before, Chris, how music uh, is a medium, is a genre that can, uh, that can captivate and evangelize uh, both the heart and imagination. But again, as you said, we don't always see it in secular culture, and especially today in 2015, it is unfortunately very rare to see. Mm-hmm. You might have a few artists out there. But this is why this interview struck me. I, I read this once, I read it a second time, and, and I thought, gosh, did, uh, did Bono just say what I thought he said? So let us go ahead and get into this interview. And now I'm going to play the role of the journalist, Mishka Asayas, and uh, I'll go ahead and read. This is from a book-long interview. And I am Mishka Sias, and Chris, you are going to be Bono. But you're the singer and front man in a band, and it's not just any band. I'm sure you've been tempted. Don't you ever feel that no matter what you've decided about fidelity to your wife, love needs to be incarnated? Think of groupies. We never fostered that environment. If you mean groupie in the sense that I know it, which is sexual favors traded for proximity with the band, Taking advantage of a fan, sexual bullying, is to be avoided. But the music is sexual sometimes. The erotic love we sing about can turn into something much higher and bigger notions of love and God and family. It seems to seg you very easily for me between those. I'm surprised at how easily religion comes up in your answers. Whatever the question is, how come you're always quoting from the Bible? Was it because it was taught at school or because your father or mother wanted you to read it? Let me try to explain something to you, which I hope will make sense of the whole conversation. I remember coming back from a very long tour. Dublin at Christmas is cold, but it's lit up. It's like carnival in the cold. On Christmas Eve, I went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It had dawned on me before, but it really sank in. The Christmas story. The idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe... That it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child born in straw poverty, a child, I just thought, wow, just the poetry. Unknowable love, unknowable power, describes itself as the most vulnerable. There it was. I was sitting there and tears came down my face, and I saw the genius of this, utter genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. But because that's exactly what we're talking about earlier, love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. To me, it makes sense. It's actually logical. It's pure logic. Essence has to be manifest itself. It's inevitable. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. Wasn't that your point earlier? I don't know if Bono realizes this or not, but he's really given us an example of of how the new evangelization finds a place in the world. Taking something incredibly secular, a question about groupies in a rock band, mm-hmm. and bringing it to a deeper realization, bringing it to something more, bringing it in the light of Christ, which, as I was reflecting on that, I feel like is really the answer that theology of the body is 
to the modern world's questions. Because today's society, today's culture, is so obsessed with sexuality, so obsessed with, you know, who sleeps with who and all of those kind of things. But when really theology of the body is trying to take that mindset, that longing, that sort of fixation that our society has on sexual nature right now, and bring it to something greater, that our, our sexual nature isn't the beginning and the end. It's the beginning, and that the end is God, and how God can reveal himself through male and femaleness. And what I think is genius about how Bono approaches this question is he proposes. Mm. He doesn't impose. There's a tendency, I think, for us to become confrontational with a question like that, to say, what are you talking about? Why would I ever do that? And I think the world kind of shies away from that. It hears, it hears confrontation when it comes to our sexuality and thinks, oh, there's those, those crazy Christians again just telling us not to, not to ever engage anything sexual. He actually takes him to a much deeper place. And in proposing the beauty of the way we're designed, you know, mentioning God and family and this logic, the logos that leads us to think of these things, he completely turns the topic to something more uh, real and manifest in truth. I, I just thought it was very interesting the way that he, he did that in, in such a very um, non-confrontational way. Which, you know, having experience with ministering and trying to model in this new evangelization, I think something that's very key, something very foundational to the new evangelization is taking things that are ordinary, taking things that seem everyday, and really using them to point to something extraordinary. We call it the new evangelization, but to some respects, it's really just the really, really old evangelization done again. You can think back to St. Patrick and his use of the three-leaf clover to describe the Trinity, something that anyone of his time would have been familiar with, mm -hmm. but yet takes that ordinary thing and uses it to describe something extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, Christ himself. I mean, what does Christ do but tell stories, tell parables, using images, making what is incomprehensible comprehensible. You know, you, you think of a pearl, you, you think of a, a mustard seed, you think of a dough of bread, and do you think that these are things that would belong to divine revelation? Well, uh, they are, right? And I think we are familiar with those parables and those stories. So uh, Christ himself, yeah, he uses images to evangelize the, the imagination. So uh, the likes of a St. Patrick are following suit, and, and so are we called to do the same. And you guys both spoke to it well. You know, you just meet the person where they're at. You don't have to coerce and browbeat. You just take them where they're at. You walk through their door that they open to you. And when you're done with that conversation, hopefully when you walk out that door, they're following you. And uh, this isn't difficult because something we have touched upon from one week to the next in Theology of the Body is this overarching truth, that Eros itself rightfully belongs to God. So while they're looking for God, they're looking for God in all the wrong places. So it's just showing them in a very non-judgmental way in a very inviting way, the fullness of Eros. We talked about it at the beginning of this radio program. Eros is intended to lead one to agape. This is the whole design, right? So he does, Bono, that is, a beautiful job, as you mentioned, Chris, of taking this journalist, uh, Asias, and drawing him into 
essentially his understanding of incarnate love, <laughs> the fullness of uh, incarnate love, which at the heart of it is a love that is sacrificial. A bit more exalted than the illusion that the journalist was trying to bring about, with mm-hmm. that being, you know, uh, a sexual favor from a, uh, a groupie being somehow incarnate love. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is leading somebody to the truth. And Bono himself was evangelized uh, by an encounter he had. He says, you want to know what? I think there's a story I have for you that'll sum it all up. It's as if Christ himself was speaking. You want to know what? I think there's a story uh, I can tell you about that'll help you better understand. So Bono himself was first evangelized by this encounter he had in Dublin, and out from that, he was able to take uh, these questions that he was asking and give them the new and appropriate understanding, the fullness, again, of uh, what was behind that question. And again, uh, this union that we are seeking, um, this erotic love, is is tied up in the meaning of life for us. Mm-hmm. So of course we're seeking it. Of course we're going to be interested about it. Um, but if we don't you know, attach it to the agape like we're talking about here, it leads to a dead end. Well, and, and to sort of tie back into our conversation about Lent, if we let eros run rampant in our lives, we we really lead ourselves into destruction. Mm-hmm. And and so it's going back to this idea of Lent that really eros is good and is healthy and is needed in the sense that God intends for it to be. And same with anything, anything that the flesh desires, whether that be food, whether that be drink, whatever it is, that those things can be good and that those things can be welcomed in the proper time, in the proper place, in the proper amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, for Eros would ultimately be the the married couple, right? Um, but in other ways, you know, in food and drink, in the proper place and in the proper time, mm-hmm. which is again, you know, this opportunity we have in Lent to put that into practice. I'm reminded of Archbishop Sheen's uh, quote that resounds in my ears often: "Is uh, the world's way is first the uh, feast and then the hangover, mm-hmm. and the Christian way is first the fast." and then the feast, Mm -hmm. in the proper time, in the proper order. Mm -hmm. Amen. You know, as you were talking there, Derek, I couldn't help but think about the reading we're going to hear this Sunday. Uh, You know, this Sunday, the first reading is about Noah. I was going through that reading, and you know, I don't know if we think about this, uh, because I don't know if the movie captured this, (laughs) that whole other conversation, (laughs) but uh, Noah built this ark, not on a coastline, but in the middle of a desert, right? (laughs) He's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, certainly he would have been the laughing stock of the community, and there he is doing his thing. And I cannot help but think, and some of my thought right now comes out of a conversation I had this past week from Theology of the Body a few weeks ago where someone asked me, Joe, how do you do it? It's just so hard because when you are a voice of reason, when you are a voice to what Bono was talking about, everyone's pointing the finger. That's the whole idea. In God's grace, we're set apart. We're no longer blending in. We're no longer just getting in line and keeping up with the Joneses. We're doing what God has designed for us to do. We must remember the word holiness in its Hebrew literally means to be set apart. So we have to enter into this purity that Christ calls us to. Uh, You were talking about, you know, food, drink, and these things are good. We need that carnal virtue of temperance as well. I've always said, you know, the most underestimated carnal virtue is temperance, because temperance brings balance to our lives. It brings balance to what we do. 
And, and we need that this Lenten season. And that virtue and gift of purity certainly is what is so foundational for us to live out that great call of holiness. So when people are pointing the finger, we have a deeper sense of, you want to know what? I am doing what God is calling me to do. And that can be so difficult. I actually just had this conversation with my wife the other day that sometimes in our heart and in our soul, we know that what we're doing is right. And sometimes people with the best intentions can step in the way of that. You know, they want to help us. They offer their suggestions. They they try to get us to maybe go about it a different way. But we know in our heart that we need to do it the way that we've been told to do it. You can almost, using Noah as an example, imagine if a friend of his or if a buddy of his said, well, shouldn't you build the boat on the coast? Mm -hmm. Couldn't you guys move and build it where there's water already? But no, God told Noah, build it here and don't worry about the water. And and that's what we have to do sometimes. And it, it can be difficult. I was just going to say, we, we know what it's like to build in the desert, you know, because we live in a society that is very much the desert for us. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. If we start building things that are of God, we're, we're bound to get resistance or people, like you say, trying to redirect. Let me just kind of help you along when we know what it is that God's calling us to. When you start putting this in the context of theology of the body, as we've already talked about it this evening— Everywhere you turn, there is this hypersexualization of our culture. It's on every corner, especially in Chico. So we have the challenge before us. Uh, this is not rocket science. It's a matter of embracing this truth and really incarnating that more authentic love of Christ inside of us and that great uh, gift and virtue of purity. It ties in really well with Paul's writing in the end of Ephesians 6. When he talks about spiritual warfare, our battles, our confrontations aren't with one another. Our battle and our confrontation is the ruler of this age, the ruler of sin and of death. And, and really, especially during Lent, and we have the biblical example of Christ in the desert. Who does Christ find in the desert? Mm -hmm. Does he find the Father? No. The devil finds him mm -hmm. and tries mm -hmm. to tempt him. And during this time of Lent, we can certainly be more aware of that, mm -hmm. but realize that our battles aren't with one another, our battles aren't with the naysayers, mm -hmm. but with really the, the source of that resistance, the evil one. That's right. And if there's anything he's manipulated, it is our sexuality. And one thing that I saw just today, I saw a young couple, couldn't have been, you know, a, a gentleman, probably 21, 22, young lady, maybe 20, 21 clearly in a marital relationship with a child. Maybe they might have been a little bit older. Um, they were walking into a shop, and I, I just I stopped and I framed the picture because that's something that I don't see enough of. Um, and I want to call out to young people who are listening to this program, the world needs family. The mm. world needs holy families. I mean, it filled my heart with goodness, and, it, and it gave me, you know, every, we, we need these little signs of hope, and, and that was one of them. So I want to really uh, exhort and call young people to not buy into what the, what the culture is feeding you, but seek a deeper truth. Amen, Chris. I think that's a good thought to close on. We'll go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth. 
heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.